0: I'm really excited about being able to talk about Ecclesiastes today. Uh, you might remember when, um, when Matt started off the series and introduced the series, he said that Ecclesiastes is probably not a book that you've read before um, because it's a bit weird. It's kind of out there. It's a bit crazy. Um, and it can be a little bit depressing, but I have to be honest, um, it's, I think it's my favorite book in the Old Testament. I think it's awesome. It is brilliant. It is really, really interesting. And it's pretty philosophical, which might be why I like it, but it's also just out there. It's crazy. Uh, I don't know if that's okay to say that a book of the Bible is crazy, but I'll show you what I mean, right? Because this is, um, this is called wisdom literature. This is one of the books of the Old Testament, which is called wisdom literature. And yet uh, in this wisdom literature, it says this, For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. That's somewhat of a contradictory thing to say in wisdom literature, right? Okay? That's kind of like those, you know, when that old thing where people say, everything I say is a lie. You're like, well, that's kind of circular, right? Are you lying right now? Is that a lie? In which case, you, everything that you said wouldn't be a lie. And it kind of goes around and around in circles. It's the same thing that we see here. We've got a book which is about wisdom, it's called Wisdom Literature. And in the book, it's saying that wisdom is kind of pointless, it's kind of empty. Um, it is philosophical. This is a philosophical book. The word philosophy comes from two words, phile and sophos, meaning a love of wisdom. Uh, and so you could say, and you should say, that this book is about loving wisdom, but it's also a book that for some reason has a go at wisdom half the time as well. It's quite contradictory. Have, have a bit of a look through some of the stuff in Ecclesiastes that the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying about wisdom. It says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom, all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And it keeps going. There is a whole bunch of stuff in Ecclesiastes which is right down this vein. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who com- comes after the king? Only what has been done already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. That's kind of weird, because doesn't that sound a bit like the opposite of what he just said. Now he's saying that there's gain in wisdom. It's good to be wise. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been forgotten how the wise dies just like the fool so i hated life brilliant isn't that great so i hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all his vanity and his striving after a win this guy can't make his mind up half the time he's saying that wisdom's great and that we, we should kind of pursue it because it's better to be wise than to be a fool but then he goes on to say but wise people die just like fools and that's something that if you've been uh, if you've been here over the last couple of weeks and you've Heard the other talks from Ecclesiastes. That's kind of a bit of a running trend, right? It's like, good, bad, what's the difference? You're going to die anyway. Right? Rich, poor, what's the difference? You're going to die anyway. This is this, this kind of running thing that's always going on here, and it can be, I can get a little bit depressing, but we have to remember that we understand the context that the book is written in and what it's trying to say. There is a lot. There is a lot more. I don't have time to go through it all, but. Um, I mean, you can see just uh, halfway through there, it says, Surely oppression drives the wise into madness. Okay, at the the top there it says, The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. So if you're wise, you're sad. And if you're a fool, you're happy. And everyone's going to die, so you may as well be a happy fool than a sad wise person, right? continues on if I mean there's so much stuff in here about wisdom majority of it is saying that it's empty and pointless because life has this kind of meaninglessness to it right at the end there of Ecclesiastes 9 11 to 18 it says the words of the wise heard and quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools wisdom is better than weapons of war but one sinner destroys much good right and the word there is but there's this Wisdom is great, but you're all going to die. We're all going to die. Wisdom's awesome, but one sinner can get in there and mess up the whole thing. So what we see in Ecclesiastes when the writer is talking about uh, wisdom is we see some contradictions. We see this kind of idea that wisdom is good, but wisdom is also really problematic and there's some problems with it. I think that the question that Somdi has asked a lot of the time throughout when he's been talking about Ecclesiastes. He reads a whole bunch of stuff and then he gets to the end of it and he asks this question, are you depressed yet? Right? Have you heard him ask that one before? Are you depressed yet? So I can read all that stuff from Ecclesiastes about wisdom and say, are you depressed? Um, now, this is supposedly, we, th- we think there's, a good, there's a, a good chance that this book is written by Solomon. You know, we refer to him, or it's, he's being referred to as Colette uh, because we're not 100% sure, but Colette is the name that he refers to himself as. Um, but if this is Solomon, you can kind of see that it's that this is a weird thing for him to talk about. This is the guy who pursued wisdom more than anything else, who had who has all of Proverbs, the Proverbs all about wisdom, it's all about how great it is to be wise. He gets to the end of his life and this is what he writes. He writes Ecclesiastes, he writes wisdom, nah, whatever, you know. Eat, drink and be merry because tomorrow you die. So the real question that we have to ask here is why is he talking about wisdom as being so empty? And this is where the whole context of Ecclesiastes and the way that things are getting spoken about really matters, okay? Because we're talking about wisdom in a closed system. Now, that's terminology that we've used already in the last sort of month or so as going through Ecclesiastes. This closed system is the idea of a system without God. It's a system, it's a naturalistic, materialistic system. So a system that is closed off to the idea of something greater being able to impact in. And the opposite of it that we're talking about is an open system. A system where God can come in and can do stuff. But within a closed system, wisdom is pointless. This is the terminology we've been using To talk about the meaninglessness of life, death, sin, wealth, happiness, sickness, marriage, everything. But remember, it's a meaninglessness that isn't real. It's a perceived meaninglessness. It's meaninglessness in a closed system without God. So what's this really saying? What it's really saying is, look at everything that you have. Look at your life, your mind, your intellect, your abilities, your riches, your words, your looks, your everything... And then look at it without God and see that it's nothing. See that all of that stuff really is nothing. It's just dust. If there is nothing else, if you die and just become dust, then everything else is dust as well. Um, I'm an English teacher and so I can't help but talk about Shakespeare a little bit. But uh, Hamlet is the most philosophical character in the most philosophical book of Shakespeare and he's got some great questions. He's got questions that align really well with the writer of Ecclesiastes. You probably know to be or not to be, right? That's the big famous one. To be or not to be is Hamlet questioning whether or not to exist, which is, that's a question that fits right in with Ecclesiastes really well. It's a really human question to ask. But there's another part in in, uh, Hamlet where Hamlet's talking to a couple of mates of his, or they're betraying him, and he's kind of aware of that fact. But he's talking to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, and this is what he says. I have of late, but wherefore I know not, lost all my mirth, forgone all custom of exercises, and indeed it goes so heavily with my disposition that this goodly frame, the earth, seems to me a sterile promontory. This most excellent canopy, the air, look you this brave overhanging firmament, this majestical roof fretted with golden fire, why it appears no other thing to me than a foul and pestilent congregation of vapors. He can see the sky, he can see the majesty of it, but he cannot help but still see it as a foul and pestilent congregation of vapors. He goes on to talk about humanity. He says, what a piece of work is man!" How noble in reason, how infinite in faculty. In form and moving, how express and admirable. In action, how like an angel. In apprehension, how like a god. The beauty of the world, the paragon of animals. And yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? And That's the that's question of Ecclesiastes, right? What is this? What's the point of this stuff? This idea that in a closed system we die and we become dust... That is, a, that is a compelling thing to think about it. Hamlet goes on, uh, later on, he's with his friend Horatio in a, in a graveyard and there's a gravedigger digging up bones and he, he digs up a skull and he looks at the skull and he realises it's a friend of his, a guy that, he, that was older than him but who's dead now, Yorick, and he says, Alas, Yorick, I knew him well, Horatio. Uh, and then he's going on and reflecting on this fact that e- if everyone dies in a closed system, it doesn't matter how great you are doesn't matter what you do. And he is talking about Alexander the Great. That's his example. He says, To what base uses we may return, Horatio? Why may not an imagination trace the noble dust of Alexander till he find it stopping a bunghole? Alexander died. Alexander was buried. Alexander returneth into dust. The dust is earth. Of earth we make loam. And why of that loam whereto he was converted might not they stop a beer barrel? Alexander the Great. The Great you know, in humanistic terms, in atheistic terms, one of the greatest people and yet he dies, turns to dust and eventually he's just a cork. (laughs) That's it, that's what's left of him, just a cork and a beer barrel. So, all of this questioning is about questioning in a closed system. This, what he's talking about here, this is about saying, in this closed system, what is the point of anything? But to try to get practical, what exactly should this mean for us? How should we approach wisdom? How, what is the writer of Ecclesiastes saying to us about approaching wisdom? What is the best way to do it? If wisdom is vanity, how should we approach it? And how does God, by opening up the system, how does he change wisdom? What is the difference between a closed system way of thinking about wisdom and this way of thinking about wisdom with God. Well, I think that there's three vanities of wisdom in the closed system. The smarter you get, the dumber you get. No respect for knowledge in the modern world and conventional wisdom. The first two points are just minor points that are going to lead us to the major point, which is number three. You might have heard me say this before, that a lot of the time it seems like the more educated a person gets, the less intelligent they get somehow. Um, when I, I, I was talking about um, pain and suffering last year, and I used the example of the fact uh, Stephen Fry, who's this very intelligent guy over in England, uh, talked about the fact that there mustn't be a God because look at all the pain and suffering, right? And I just kind of debunked that, and I was talking about how it doesn't just because there's pain and suffering doesn't prove that there's not a God. In fact, it actually proves that there is a God. And someone came up to me afterwards and said, "Well, why doesn't someone tell Stephen Fry that?" <laughs> and I said, "I'm sure someone's told him." And I'm sure he doesn't care. I'm sure that that is not enough for him, right? Because a lot of the time, only an educated person could be that stupid. Now, I'm a teacher, right? <laughs> That's my job, to educate people. And not only that, but I am educated, um, and I like education, I'm pursuing more education. But the truth is, a lot of the time, the more educated a person is in a particular field, they mo- the more they always wanna see everything through that lens. They get really dogmatic about that particular way of thinking about stuff. Avowed atheists really struggle to look reality in the face and see the logical issues with their point of view. In fact, they just ignore logic a lot of the time because they adhere to their education, the knowledge that they think they have, the knowledge that they want to be real more than anything else, and then they stick with that. I mean, I think that it is so blindingly obvious that everything cannot come from nothing. I mean, that's just straightforward, right? In fact, it's a scientific rule. It's all of the scientists that have acknowledged the rules of thermodynamics that actually says that. You can't create energy. But they just want to ignore it. They want to go against their own rules because it doesn't fit within the educational paradigm that they have accepted. And a lot of the time, it seems that you need to be pretty educated to be that illogical, right? The smarter you get, the more you study, the more you can just ignore common sense. Um... There's this guy G.K. Chesterton who wrote about this uh, in a book called Orthodoxy. He talks about the fact that a true mad person is actually someone who is obsessed with their own particular understanding and they cannot see anything that doesn't fit within their way of thinking. He says this, If you argue with a madman, it is extremely probable that you'll get the worst of it. For in many ways, his mind moves all the quicker for not being delayed by the things that go with good judgment. (laughs) They just think whatever the heck they want, right? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's illogical or not. He goes on to say this, I love this, he says this in The Suicide of Thought. The new rebel is a skeptic and will not entirely trust anything. And the fact that he doubts everything really gets in his way when he wants to denounce anything. Thus he writes one book complaining that imperial oppression insults the purity of women. And then he writes another book in which he insulted himself. As a politician he will cry out that war is a waste of life. And then as a philosopher that all life is a waste of time. A Russian pessimist will denounce a policeman for killing a peasant and then prove by the highest philosophical principles that the peasant ought to have killed himself. A man denounces marriage as a lie and then denounces aristocratic profligates for treating it as a lie. The man of this school goes first to a political meeting where he complains that savages are treated as if they were beasts and then he takes his hat and umbrella and goes on to a scientific meeting where he proves that they practically are beasts. By rebelling against everything, he has lost his right to rebel against anything. There's this weird thing that goes on where people simply believe what it is that they want to believe and they ignore the things that they don't like. In this realm, in this kind of paradigm, what happens is that knowledge actually starts to lose its value. Strangely enough, in a knowledge economy, knowledge isn't valued very highly. Because, and I think it makes a bit of sense smart people seem to say some really dumb things, right? And so when smart people say dumb things, you start thinking, well, what's the point of listening to them? They can't even work out some basic common sense. But where that leads to is this complete lack of value of knowledge. And it makes sense particularly when you realize that everybody disagrees. I don't know if you've ever done research on something, wanted to find something out for yourself. And so you got online, and you googled it. And you found 20 sites all with PhD holders saying stuff and they all disagree with each other. Isn't that weird? So you're kind of stuck in this, you've got this world there of really intelligent people that have done all the work and you're like, they all disagree with each other. Now surely as people learn more they should actually start to agree with each other more, right? But that's not what happens. It doesn't work that way. People don't agree with each other more as they become more educated. They actually, for some reason, their points of view become more disparate. And because that happens, well, what happens to us? What happens to us is that we go and look for knowledge and we can't find any, or we find heaps and it's all contradictory. So what are we left with? Oh, well, we'll we'll just choose what we like. We'll just choose the thing that we thought anyway in the first place. Because we have found someone smart who has a PhD who said that. We'll ignore everything else and we'll just choose the thing that we are already predisposed to thinking anyway. So what this actually does, all of this disagreement on everything, actually erodes all authority. There is no educational authority. There is no authority for someone who is... Really intelligent, a master of their area to say, actually, this is the way it is. Because the only people that will listen to them are the people that like what they have to say. So, this, you might have seen this happen, right? I'll, I'll be careful. I'm not picking a side here, but I'm just choosing a really, a really good example, right? Vaccinations. Okay? You're not sure about vaccinations. You don't know. You've heard people say they're good. You've heard people say they're bad. You've got kids. You want your kids to be safe. And so you get online and you Google and you find all of these doctors saying that they're good. And you find all of these doctors saying that they're bad. And so what do you do? You just pick the thing that you wanted to do in the first place, really. But the thing that follows after that, the next step is really weird. Then you go around telling everyone else what you think and that it's right. Yeah? A lot of the time what we, what we do, we'll get online, we'll do our little five minutes of research, uh, we'll find some stuff that we like and then we'll think, well, that's it, it must be that and then we will go and spread the good news, right? We will tell everyone about how our research knows all, we know everything that there is to know and we will tell other people about that. Because there's no authority left in education, everyone has a point of view on everything and everyone thinks that their point of view is right. Yeah, I see this every day because I'm a teacher um, and I'm not talking about the students of course the students think their point of view is right that's obvious but they're clearly wrong that's straightforward, I can just tell them that and that's okay even though I'm not in maths where it's obvious I'm still am like, you're just wrong, Shakespeare's great you're wrong um, but what I, the way I actually cop it most of the time is from talking to parents you see here's the thing right I'm a teacher, I work in a school but everyone's been to school Right? So everyone knows everything that there is to know about schools and education. Sometimes I have parent-teacher interviews and people lean across the, the desk and they say, look, I know that you have to teach Shakespeare, but we both know it's a waste of time. Right? And I'm looking at them like, it's not what I think at all, right? But I'm being polite and I'm like, mm, okay, fair enough, your opinion's valid. Um, but the weird thing is because everyone's either been to school or people have kids in school, everyone is a master of education. I actually am a master of education, like I have a master's degree, but it doesn't matter. The education that I have means nothing in the light of other people's ill-informed opinions. That's simply the way that it works most of the time, right? And it's, and maybe this is a really Australian thing because the other thing is we don't like being told by someone who's spent the time learning. We don't like being told that we're wrong because we like to say, well, all that learning's a waste of time. It wouldn't make any difference to me, so I won't bother doing it. Where this leads us to... Is the ignorant know-it-all masses, right? Everyone knows everything that there is to know. No one's listening to anybody else. The thing that we really enjoy doing is telling everybody else what we think, that it's right. We're not very good at arguing for it because we don't really understand logic, but that doesn't matter because what really matters is what comes out of our mouth. Uh, 150 years ago, this legend called Cardinal John Henry Newman wrote this. What is more common than the sight of grown men talking on political or moral or religious subjects in that offhand idle way which we signify by the word unreal? That they simply do not know what they are talking about is the spontaneous, silent remark of any man of sense who hears them. Hence, such persons have no difficulty in contradicting themselves in successive sentences without being conscious of it. Hence, others can never look straight before them, never see the point, and have no difficulties in the most difficult subjects. Others are hopes, hopelessly obstinate and prejudiced, and after they have been driven from their opinions, return to them the next moment without even an attempt to explain why. Others are so intemperate and intractable that there is no greater calamity for a good cause than that they should get a hold of it. In other words, at the end there, some people are so annoying you don't want them on your side. Right? You would prefer if they weren't with you. And his reason is because we're not that interested in pursuing truth really a lot of the time. Now this was written 150 years ago and that should be, maybe that's you know, nice to know because I like to think or sometimes I I realise that I think that everything's getting worse and so it's nice to know that people were still like this 150 years ago but it's also depressing to know that it was like this 150 years ago, right? But it's more depressing than that because go back to Proverbs which is a, a long time ago. This sums it up really well, doesn't it? A fool has no delight in understanding but in expressing his own heart. I'm a teacher. I see that every day. That's what they do. But the truth is, it's what we all do. We all do it. Adults just have more sophisticated ways of getting around it, that's all. Students are like, you're wrong. That's it. But we've got, we got our clever little mechanisms for getting exactly the same thing happening. So these two things... These two things lead us to number three, which is conventional wisdom. Okay, Conventional wisdom is the word that I want to use to, to talk about wisdom in a closed system, uh, earthly wisdom. Okay, And I think that this is something that Coelet is tr- is implying here, that there is actually something bad about wisdom. You can't read it. You can't read Ecclesiastes and not think that because he says it really clearly. So what we have to do is we need to puzzle out what that could possibly mean from someone who also says that wisdom is good. So let's do that. The first thing to recognise is that conventional wisdom is not necessarily bad. Please do not hear that that's what I'm saying. Conventional wisdom is probably actually good. It's probably so good that people use it all the time, so much so that it becomes a convention, which is why it's called the conventional wisdom, Right? There's nothing intrinsically wrong with conventional wisdom. A really easy place to start is budgeting. Is it a good idea to budget? Is it? Yeah? Some people are like, what's a budget? (laughs) (laughs) That was me until I had children. Um, Budgeting is good. It's a good idea to make sure to have a look at your income, have a look at your expenses, make sure you've got enough money to feed the kids and put fuel in the car. It's wise and it's good and not doing it is foolish, right? In fact, it's beyond just foolish. Not doing it is tantamount to uh, a bit of a sin. Have a look at First uh, Timothy 5 verse 8. It says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Brutal. So being wise with money is good. It's conventional and it's good. But here's the thing, right? Sometimes living in the world of closed system believers can make us think like closed system believers. Sometimes living in a world where everyone accepts and thinks that it's a closed system can make us think like those people. Living in an atheistic world can sometimes mean we start living like atheists without even realizing it. So I want to challenge you today to think about the kinds of conventional wisdom that you're just accepting in your life. Because the thing is, right, God is often anything but conventional. He's a bit out there sometimes, right? And probably he wants us to be pretty out there sometimes as well. And possibly because we're so obsessed with conventional wisdom, we haven't even thought about the fact that God might want us to be a little bit out there, the way that he is. Some examples, right? Some conventional wisdom in the Bible. This is a great example. Abraham. So God tells Abraham, you're going to have a son, Abraham's like, really? Okay, cool. Um, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, are very old. But he's like, sure, I think that can probably maybe happen. I don't know, willing to give it a go. Abraham and Sarah try for a while. Nothing's really happening. Sarah's like, I don't think I'm going to have a kid, right? I'm really old. So Sarah has this idea and says, why don't you go and um, sleep with Hagar, with my servant? Um, Because remember, God didn't say that we were going to have a son, did he? Didn't he just say that you were going to have a son? Abraham thinks about it for a while and he's like, you know, that makes sense. That actually makes sense, right? And so he goes and sleeps with Hagar. Now you, we have the benefit of hindsight. We can look at it and go, silly old Abraham, what were you thinking, right? But what he was thinking was, God's told me I'm going to have a son and my wife can't have kids and so surely I've got to do something about that. Surely God wants me to take initiative. Surely, you know, God gives to those people who, you know, work stuff out for themselves as well. Here's the thing. We can laugh at Abraham now, but I wonder if it's the same kind of call that you would have made at the time given the circumstances. See, the problem is not that Abraham doubted what God could do. He simply thought about the situation and applied a little bit of earthly wisdom. He didn't doubt God's ability. He just doubted the way that it was going to happen. He doubted a bit of the logic. And what he did made sense. What he did in an earthly, in a closed system, without God intervening, what Abraham did not only made sense, it's about the only thing that does make sense, right? In a closed system. I think he did what many of us would do. We want something to happen. It doesn't seem to be happening. And so we take matters into our own hands. Second example is this, keeping the manna. The Israelites are in the wilderness. They're hungry. God gives them manna. God says, don't keep it. They keep it. And the next day, they go to eat it and it's rotten and it's no good. Okay? What is God wanting to teach them? He wants them to rely on him daily. But it's not just that he wants them to rely on him because here's the thing, right? They already rely on him. They know the manna came from him. They know it's this miracle stuff. They don't. God doesn't just want them to rely on him. They want them to remember that they rely on him. And if they could keep that manner, put it aside, eventually that'd have so much that they would start thinking, gee, I'm doing a good job looking after this manna. Look at the manner I've provided for my family. Can you see that? It's, a, it's about relying on God every day and being aware because we all rely on God every day but a lot of the time we're not aware of it. It's a good point to think about. How much does your budgeting, checking the balances, making sure it all adds up, how much does that help you sleep at night? Do you have trouble sleeping at night when it's not adding up? Do you rely on that? Do you rely on your math and your income and your workplace? Or do you rely on God? Are you sleeping well at night knowing that God's on your side? Or are you sleeping well at night knowing that the bank's on your side? That you're on the right side of the red? See, budgeting is wise. But can you see the way that it can start to tempt us to live as if we're in a closed system? All right, here's the last example which you're going to be like, there's nothing wise about this okay Adam and Eve are living with God they know God they walk with God they talk with God God says don't eat the fruit of that tree and they're like okay sure and then they eat the fruit of the tree no wisdom there none well remember that Eve wasn't with God at the time that she ate it she was talking to someone else she was talking to Satan and what did Satan tell her Satan said if you eat this you will be like God's now would being like God's be cool? Yeah, it'd be pretty sweet, right? Just admit it, it's okay. I mean, I think it's it's okay because we're actually designed to want something greater. That's that's within us, right? So it's not exactly like Eve was like listening, God and Satan were right there and she's like, I'm just going with Satan, right? She's listening to Satan, Satan's lying. Eve is never heard a lie before, Um and Eve listens to it, and I think she makes the earthly, closed system, wise decision. Now, I hope you can understand what I mean there, right? She, for for a moment, she makes the call which seems to be, in all earthly, con- you know, ways of thinking about it, the best call, for her. She decides that she wants to be like God. Okay. Um, the weird thing about that is that that continues. That idea continues. This idea of trying to be like God continues. There are two really bad sources of conventional wisdom. C.S. C. Lewis calls um, pride the great sin. Pride does not ask for advice, pride stakes its own claim. The great sin, pride, the first sin, the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel is another example, right? In a closed system, the Tower of Babel makes a lot of sense. Be as powerful as possible. Be as amazing as possible. Then that continues on with a whole bunch of other thinkers. Basically, every person who has wanted to see the world as a closed system and wanted to become as powerful and as good as possible has ended up doing really dumb stuff. Because in a closed system, all of the great wisdom that ignores God is empty. It doesn't mean anything. The weird thing is, that God still does let us do stuff, right? There's this part of the great divorce, which is a book by C.S. Lewis, and it says, there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. See, God could have stopped Abraham. Abraham was using earthly wisdom. God could have stopped him. God didn't. You're using earthly wisdom. We all do all the time. And we could say, well, if God didn't want me to do it, he'd tell me. Well, maybe he is. And you're so used to using this closed system way of thinking that you are not even thinking about whether or not God wants you to do that thing because it just makes so much sense. It has never been easier, I think, to not believe in God because humanity has never appeared more impressive. Yeah? We've never been more godlike than we are right now. So we, you know, back in the day when when we didn't know what rain was, we were like there must be something out there because water comes from the sky when we're thirsty and that's great. But now we know it's precipitation, mm, who cares, right? We're the gods. We understand it. We're the people in control here. But even though there's never been a time that humanity has ever f- seemed so godlike, has humanity ever appeared more repulsive at the same time? more depraved, less human conventional wisdom it gets us to do really weird stuff. conventional wisdom is not bad, but you know what we should be doing more often is we need to be asking God about this stuff about everything all of the time it's I mean really lines with what Pete was talking about before right don't say no to going overseas because you don 't have the money that's conventional wisdom say. God, do you want me to go? I know if you want me to go, the money will turn up. That's the open system kind of wisdom, right? The conventional wisdom of the world is wise, but it is wise assuming a world without God. When we take and embrace conventional wisdom without question, we are operating out of this empty vain wisdom that the writer of Ecclesiastes is talking about. And the list is endless. Think about it, budgeting, Insurance, what car to buy, how many kids to have, when to get married, what school to go to, what job to have, whether to seek promotion, who to marry, when to have kids, what kind of house to live in, where to live, what to watch on TV, what books to read, what church to go to, what music to listen to. All of those questions have answers that, that are decent, that might be good within conventional wisdom. They might be great answers. They might be the right answers. But they might not be. And unless you talk to God about it, you don't know. Have a think about insurance though, right? Insurance is wise. In fact, insurance is so wise that the government forces you to have it. But what's insurance? Isn't it just banking on the fact that bad stuff's going to happen to you? You're literally putting money away for not a rainy day, for a crappy day. <laughs> Something bad's coming and I've got to make sure I've got money. But isn't it possible that that's just kind of, it's really just built on fear? A lot of conventional wisdom is what we do because we're scared of the future. We don't know what the future holds. We're wise with thinking about that. Bad stuff happens. Humans want to be safe. So we use our wisdom to protect ourselves. We do all the things that we do to protect ourselves. We plan ahead, we budget, we read the books, we watch the market, we research artificial foods, we choose paleo or gluten-free or raw only, we avoid processed sugars, we don't vaccinate or we do vaccinate, Either all of that. It's all about being scared, right? I don't vaccinate because I'm scared what it'll do to my kids. I do vaccinate because I'm scared what not doing it will do to my kids. Remember, I'm not saying conventional wisdom is bad. I'm saying, man, we've got to be talking to God more because we live in an open system. It is not like the way that the writer of Ecclesiastes says. It is not empty. A lot of the time, what this wisdom does is it it constrains and restrains God. Most wisdom, most of the wise things that we do, at their core, you could say they're about wanting to control things. Wanting to control our environment, control our future, control our happiness, control our kids, control everything. And a lot of this time, that means that we actually constrain God. It's pretty easy in this world with our wisdom and with our technology and with our abundance to forget about God, to forget that we need him daily, to forget that not only do we need him daily, but daily we only exist because of him. Fear, as a driver of wisdom, is a, that's a bad driver. That's swerving all over the shop. It's a bad reason to do things. Because look at Matthew 6.28. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow was thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you, of little of faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Do not be anxious. How do you not be anxious? Or why are you anxious? Maybe you're anxious because In a closed system, your wisdom is the only thing keeping you out of distraction. So we really need to rely on our own understanding of stuff because that's the only thing that's keeping us together in a closed system. But Christ opens the system right up and says, I've got you, I'm looking after you, talk to me about these things. You know, Sonny talked on Mother's Day. He quoted this thing um, from Ecclesiastes. um, As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones of the womb of a child, a woman with a child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. And he was talking. And then he went on to show a video of that. If you were there, you would have seen this video of conception and then the baby growing. That's amazing that we can see that, right? And conventional wisdom... The wisdom of the world, the technology that we have, shows us that. But here's a trippy thing about conventional wisdom, which makes no sense. Our society knows about how babies are made so well that we can make them. You know, Like we can take out the bits that we need and we can put it together and we can start the process. We can do that. We have intimate knowledge of the what is going on and the how it's going on but we still know nothing of the why. Why is not within our spectrum to be able to work stuff out. So we have a world which has embraced and understands the idea of making children to the tiny, tiny, tiny little micro level and we get the whole thing and yet we live in that same world that using that same conventional wisdom kills millions of babies every year through abortion. That is mind-blowing. That's insane. That's the madness that G.K. Chesterton is talking about, the madness of a closed system. We just believe what we want to believe. All right? So, really quickly to wrap it up, the open system answer. The answer to all of this is that we live in an open system with God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Have a look what a couple of verses have to say about this. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. That's that's great for what we just talked about, right? The wisdom of this world is what? Your child's disabled? It's not a child. It's just a lump. Get rid of it. That is folly with God. Who knows? That is insane. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. In a closed system, the best we can do is futility. Romans 1, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his external power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. So two points, right, on an open system wisdom. And we're almost done. The first one, value godly wisdom really highly. The second one, not too highly. This is the contradiction we see in Ecclesiastes. He's like, wisdom's great, wisdom's not great. Somehow you've got to get those things together in your head. It is great. But wisdom itself is not the goal. The goal is God. Wisdom something he gives us. There's a weird kind of anti-intelligence in some realms of Christianity that are like, you know what, it's got nothing to do with theology. Theology doesn't matter. <laughs> I know someone, a like Christian, guy I know who said that once. Theology doesn't matter. We don't care about theology. It's just about relationship. It's just about me and God. You know, I don't care about history. I don't care about logic. I don't care about philosophy. I don't care about any of these things because it's just my relationship with God that matters. Maybe I won't even read my Bible that much because if I just pray and talk to God, well, you know, that's, that's even better, isn't it, than reading the Bible? We've got this weird anti-intelligence movement within Christianity that is saying because wisdom because knowledge is all kind of earthly and fraught with danger just forget about it don't even worry about it but that's not the right response to what the writer of ecclesiastes is saying the right response is not forget about wisdom the right response is simply value it accordingly value it highly wisdom is good god not only wants you to be intelligent and wise but his causes and his plan may very well require it of you he might actually need you to be intelligent, to be wise, to be educated. Think about some of the incredible impacts on in the world by these thinkers, you know, Augustine, Aquinas, Ignatius, Chesterton Lewis, people that we quoted the project all the time, John, John Piper, Paul Tripp, Tim Keller. All of this is because they've valued godly wisdom highly. The way that they've contributed to society because of that has been huge. And that's a good reason to pursue wisdom for yourself to be able to teach wisdom to your kids, to be able to be wise for other people, to be able to help other people out. So we've got to value wisdom, but just not too highly. Wisdom is a means and not the end. Now, yeah. this is a real personal struggle for me. This is actually exactly where I'm at. Um, I'm going through redemption groups at the moment and pretty much this is the thing that's coming up for me is that I'm obsessed with wisdom, not so much obsessed with God. That's a problem, Right? I'm seeing it as the end rather than the means. True wisdom is found in accepting some mysteries in life. In fact, this awesome guy, Joseph Pieper, um, is German, so it's Pieper. Sounds cool. He said this, It is very necessary to contradict the widely held opinion that Christian philosophy is ready with all the answers. It is Christian philosophy which most fully grasps and expresses a truly philosophical sense of wonder With its source in ignorance, it is inspired by a sense of mystery. We will not ever fully know anything. Not fully. Not the way God does. Our pursuit of that kind of knowledge is actually found deep down in a pursuit of control. There's this brilliant peace. This anxiety-destroying peace when you just recognize you're not God. God's God. And you just leave it with Him. Yeah, He wants you to know stuff. He wants you to value wisdom. He wants you to pursue it. But the way that you get it is not by pursuing it alone. You get it through Him. You get it through knowing Him. This is kind of what happens at Redemption Groups, which is something that the project runs. It's about trying to help people through where they're at in life to see God more, to know God more to be redeemed from stuff that's happened to them, or stuff that they've done. Every system in the world, every ideology, every way of thinking basically acknowledges that there's something wrong with humanity and we need to fix it somehow. The big question is how do we fix it? Every one of those systems of thought that sees the world as a closed system does more damage than good every time they try to do it. That's what Safe Schools is if you know about safe schools, right? The people that are doing safe schools think this will be good. They think it will be good for society if everyone at really young ages is taught about transgender theory. I don't know what they're on about, but they think that, right? Any way of thinking about fixing people's problems that treats the world closed just destroys stuff. Because the thing that will fix you is not a thing. It's a person. It's God. See, knowing God is the beginning of wisdom. The wisdom that the writer of Ecclesiastes is talking about is empty because it doesn't arrive at God. It's about fixing earthly problems with earthly solutions that end in dust. But when we pursue God, when we know God, then the wisdom that we get is through talking to him, then that is the wisdom of an open system. It's a wisdom of living with God. A couple of things to think about before we close. Just have a think about this this week. If there's a question that sticks out to you, talk about it with your, your spouse or your kids or friends. What kind of wisdom do you strive after? Do you value wisdom at all? Or are you one of the people that said, nah, stuff it, it's too hard. Have you seen wisdom as pointless? because there's so many different points of view? Do you default to assuming your own opinion is always correct? Do you aspire to greater knowledge of the world? Do you see wisdom as an ends or a means? And these last two I think are really important for us these days. Do you take matters into your own hands? Do you accept earthly conventional wisdom without thinking twice? Are you making decisions like Abraham, like the Israelites and like Eve, which seem to make sense, but are leaving God out of the picture? Are your wise decisions really just about controlling your life and dealing with your fear? I'll leave you with Jeremiah nine twenty three to 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Knowing God, that's where it's at. That's what it's about. And remembering to know God when we're making the everyday decisions, in recognizing that the world has sold us conventional wisdom that we should think twice about. Just think twice about it. Just talk to God about it. That is what the writer of Ecclesiastes Helps us to see about wisdom. Wisdom is good. You should pursue it. But let it be wisdom that is informed by God. Not wisdom from an earthly perspective that actually starts to try and form God. you to stand up with me and we'll pray and I'll finish up. <coughs> God, thank you that you are wise. That you know everything that there is to know that you care for us and that you even embrace us in our folly in the earthly folly that we think is wise because we don't talk to you I just pray for all of us I pray for anyone who has accepted this idea that because we need to be wise we need to be in control we need to reject fear and the way that actually when we're relying on ourselves like that that just leads to anxiety leads to complete terror. And I just pray for the peace, the real peace that passes understanding, the peace that passes earthly wisdom that you give us when we just give ourselves to you. I pray that you'll encourage us, that you'll be reminding us to talk to you, to ask you questions, to not pretend as though we are the ones that look after ourselves, but to have the wisdom to acknowledge you in all things. Amen.